0: Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for what we can learn from it, but we also are, are very aware that we need to approach it in a way which is going to yield the best results. And so guide us as we think about this subject this morning, I pray. Amen. Yes, so we've, quite often you'll take a topic in church, but at the moment we're on, take a bit of scripture in church and work our way through book of 1 Timothy. And one of the big things we encountered almost immediately is is the issue of false teaching. False teaching. And uh, the best way to avoid false teaching is to know what true teaching is like. Know how to get true teaching. And of course, the source of true teaching is the Bible, the Word of God. And so knowing best how to interpret the Bible is one of the best ways to find truth in this very confused world in which we live with so many voices proclaiming and trying to sell you everything they want. And if you were to go off to Bible college and study this, you would probably call this little unit hermeneutics. simple definition of it would be something like, it's the science of bringing enlightened common sense to interpreting the Bible. So, enlightened common sense. So... By way of getting into this topic, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you a couple of stories and I'm going to invite you at the end of the story, tell me true or false, real news or fake news. And this this first story starts off with Mark 16 verse 18. They will pick up snakes with their hands and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and they'll get well. So here's the news report. So according to this news report, snake handling is on the rise within Baptist churches across the country. This report released by the NAMB this last Tuesday said the practice of snake handling as part of Sunday morning worship service has risen in Baptist churches from 2% last year to 17% this year. And Al Whitner, who's the senior pastor of First Baptist Church in Baton Rouge, L.A. reports the exciting, the exciting results of snake handling. He said, Well, a few, year, few weeks ago we began with just a few black snakes and the folks in the pews felt a little uneasy at first, but they warmed up to it quickly. And then this last Sunday we brought in rattlers and copperheads. And I think that added dimension of poison really increased interest. We had at least 40% of our people came along. The highest percentage we've had in years, and the report says that some churches are planning of adding snake handling as a regular part, as an as an ordinance. And the pastor says, "Well, haven't decided about that yet, but if it keeps bringing the lost through the doors of the church, we might just have to do so." He said, "We'd never really thought about what happened, thought about this until." At a conference at our seminary, the majority of scholars said that these last 12 verses of the Bible are original verses. So we decided we needed to have a look, and we believe in Jesus, so we thought we'd better pick up serpents. We haven't yet drunk any deadly poison, but that's scheduled for our next crusade. Funnily enough, no volunteers have come forward yet, but I have faith that they will. True or false? Bad hermeneutics, bad, oh it's true, <laughs> no it's not. <laughs> what about this one, true or false? Uh, Al Moller, the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary reported that there was a United Methodist pastor in Maryland who recently underwent surgery to switch from a woman to a man. So Dr Moller treats this subject in his normal, intelligent and biblical manner and he says, There are problems, of course, with a pastor or anyone wanting to change genders. But Dr. Muller might not have all the facts, you see, because this Reverend Ann Gordon made her change for biblical reasons. What? So Reverend Gordon reportedly struggled for most of the past two years with various biblical passages that show only men to be pastors couldn't get past one Timothy, and she said, I just couldn't ignore those voices. They make it so clear that God's plan is for only males to be pastors, and anyone who's denying this is purposely trying to distort Scripture. So what did she do? Well, she wanted to stick with Scripture, and she also wanted to obey her subjective call to be a pastor, and she could only find one answer, simple decision, in order to follow the Bible, I had to have a sex change. What other choice was there? And today, Reverend Gordon, who now is Reverend Phoenix, feels liberated. Now I can do what God called me to do, preach the word, and I can do it by biblical standards. What a thrill it is to be in the centre of God's will. There's no word yet from the church as to how they plan to handle the situation with the women deacons. Apparently, the husbands of the female deacons are very much against them having sex change operations. <laughs> and when oh. the Reverend was asked about this, she, oh, we'll just have to wait and see if the female deacons will follow scripture or not. Good interpretation or bad? Well, it's gonna, we're, we're going to be a little bit lecture roomy today, but hopefully those illustrations give you a bit of a sense that it's very easy come up with a wacky interpretation of Scripture and see how important it is to correctly divide the Word of God. And we want to say in the strongest possible terms that the truth that changes our life, the truth that gives us eternal hope, the truth that instructs us in how to live in ways that are fruitful and effective, the, the truth that promotes the health and welfare of our whole society is found within the pages of the Bible. The Bible is the place, it's the well, it's the source, it's the the supply of truth, holy truth and let's remind ourselves from Hebrews 4.12 of that fact there For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart And then there's a bigger picture even still here. Paul reminds us in his letter to Timothy that the goal of dividing correctly the word of truth is to know and love God. Oh, there's that word love. It's to know and love God so much that it fills your entire being and overflows into loving people. 1 Timothy puts that really concisely. The goal of this command is love. The goal of correct interpretation of the scripture is love. If you come to the end of your interpretation and you're feeling superior or you're feeling clever, that's not the right goal. The right goal is you you love God more and you love people more. So today's message is going to be five hermeneutical principles and there's ten questions which speak to those principles. And we've got a little chart of the big picture and you go, well, that's pretty big. So we'll look at the first little section first the first principle on the next slide the first thing you want to do when you want to read the Bible is ask what did it mean before you answer what does it mean today what did it mean and you can see questions which help you do that you can ask who was the author who wrote it and who did he write it to and what was going on at the time there when they wrote that letter so you can know why he wrote what he wrote. Now we're naturally convinced that these are improper interpretations. You see the Mormons baptize for the dead on the behalf of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 29 there where it says now if there's no resurrection what will those do who are baptised for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? Jehovah's Witnesses reject the deity of Christ. The snake handlers, as we see from Matthew 16. These are examples of bad interpretations because what do they do? They read into the text something that the original author never meant. So that's a very important point. The text you see can never mean, cannot mean what it never meant. So you come along, you look at this set of words, and you, you're here, and you apply them, and say, oh, they apply to me. Like, hey, you've got to start off. What did they mean originally? Because the true meaning of the biblical text is what God originally intended to mean when it was first spoken. And the doctrine we have of inspiration means that. That author, when he wrote, he was fully aware of what he was penning. He was fully in control of his pen. But also, at the same time, so was the Holy Spirit. And so those authors, when they write, they had a meaning at the time, an immediate meaning to the text. And that immediate meaning doesn't change. What about... We add on to further logically that we also know God can't lie. And so the Holy Spirit will not give you advice which disagrees with the Bible, will he? Because he can't contradict himself. He can't contradict himself. So therefore the Holy Spirit helps us when we read the Bible, helps us to discover the original meaning there and he guides us as we try to apply that meaning than to our situations and so just remind us of when you ask that question the first thing you ask is what did it mean what am I reading, what did it mean we've got these three questions who was the author who were the recipients, who who was it written to what was going on at the time so you can know why did he write what he wrote what he wrote to that time and to that people Enter that place. So that's the first principle. The second one is about context. And you could say this way, you could say the meaning flows from larger units to the smaller, It's, it's context. And the questions to establish context are, well, what's the flow of thought all the way through the book? What's it been talking about up to this point? Is this a continuation of that idea? Or is it going somewhere different? And then what about the, the arguments, the developing arguments that are before this bit of the scripture and what are the developing arguments after this bit of scripture? And when you think about why did the author place that paragraph right there? These are good questions you ask to establish the context, how it fits in. If you ignore context, you can come up with Well, let's take a scripture, Luke chapter 4, verse 7. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. And you go, wow, the power of worship. I just have to worship and it'll all be mine. But if you looked up the context, you see, that was Satan speaking to Jesus at the temptation. And he is saying to Jesus, oh, if you bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. So... That's an example. You could take that out of context. What about this one? Take this one out of context. There is no God from Psalm 14.1. What? Oh, there's no God. Well, I can be my own God. But the context says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So it's a trap to take a phrase or a word that just catches your attention and say, oh, think about all the possible meanings of that if you... Don't take into context where it came from and what it was saying to that situation. And I guess we're all a bit like that. My favourite is the guy who said, I don't like to study the Bible too much, I let the Holy Spirit guide me. And uh, this is how I work. So the guy said, oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, he said, So he opens his Bible, he goes. And he reads out, And Judas went out and hanged himself, Oh, that's not so good, shuffles it again. Go thou and do likewise. (laughs) Context is very important, you can't just take things out of context. Now another principle is to make allowances for the genre. The genre, that's the type of text. Ask yourself questions like, what is the genre of the text? And then, how, did that, how do people react to that type of genre in the time? So if I was to say to you that when I was a kid I watched a TV show where one man upset his brother so much that the older brother restrained him and poked his eyes aggressively and then bashed him on his brain with a brick, perhaps you'd be alarmed at my parenting until I told you the genre was comedy and the film was The Three Stooges. And that was slapstick humour. That's a genre. No one really got hurt in this movie. <laughs> and there are many genres within the Bible which each require appropriate treatment. There's law, there's history, there's poetry, prophecy, theology, there's letters, there's apocalyptic literature. So you need to ask of some sections, uh, well, you need to make allowances for the genre and you need to ask what is the genre here in this part of the Bible and how was that genre treated by the original audience? And flowing out of that is principle four literally or literarily It's hard to say that, literarily Do you take it the way the Bible, the author intended and do you recognise things like figures of speech? Are there any figures of speech being used? So, for example, do you take the Bible literally or literarily? Let's think of this example here. The saints put put bulls to the sword and the words in the article, they slaughtered them, they annihilated them, they obliterated them. So do you take the sports reports literally? Well, part of it you do. You take the scores. You take the statistics literally. But... You don't take these words annihilated and slaughtered and obliterated literally do you? They're literarily. they're, they're figures of speech. So let's look at a few figures of sp- literary devices and the first one is hyperbole which is a big word for exaggeration. For example, the whole sky was lit up with fireworks. Or oh everybody was at the party who was there? everybody was there you heard those things they don't literally mean that do they it's an exaggeration and in the biblical here's an example from the bible it's the feast of pentecost the holy spirit is going to fall on the people and the context is that they were saying in jerusalem god-fearing jews from every nation under earth well if you take that literally you mean there have to be some Jews there from Aboriginal Australia. But the point, literarily, is that many Jews from many nations were represented and the miracle was significant because just there were many languages being spoken. It wasn't meant to be literally true. What about metaphor? Just to remind those who remember back to old uh, English studies, metaphor is when one word is used for another word or another thing and you do that to sort of compare the two. Take for example John chapter 10 verse 9 Jesus said I am the door or depending on your translation I am the gate whoever enters through me will be saved they will go in come in and go out and they'll find pasture so literally if you took it literally you say, oh Jesus is a door Jesus is a gate whoever in true will be saved. So, of course it's not that. It's a metaphor. Jesus functions in some ways like a door in the, in the way that it leads to salvation and he has door-like characteristics but he's not literally a door here. It's a metaphor. Take uh, Luke chapter 13 verse 32 we have the word fox. Now, every other time in the Bible where you talk about foxes it means an orange pointy-haired dog. But Je- And here Jesus is saying, go tell that fox Herod. It would be wrong to, com- to claim that, well, every other time we use the word fox, it's literally a fox. Well, it would ro- be wrong to claim here that Jesus is saying Herod is an actual canine, a dog. Fox does mean fox, but here it's been used as a metaphor so that some aspects, the character of a fox are then... Equated with Herod. It's a metaphor. And what about euphemism? Sometimes are euphemisms are used. That's when you s- when you're talking about something that would be considered culturally indelicate, maybe something to do with sex or death or often the toilet. One of my favorite uh is of a TV show with Ronnie Corbett in it years ago at a party. And, in, and he's asking very, goes through all his ways of asking politely and starts off with, uh, where's the donut in Granny's greenhouse? The doughnut in Granny's greenhouse? Eventually he just wants to know where the loo is, you know. That's a euphemism, a, a way of, a delicate way of saying things. Sometimes there'll be an idiom, an idiom, not an idiot, an idiom, is a saying which has a meaning within a culture but not necessarily to those outside the culture. For example, oh Joe, oh his his place, oh that's way out past the black stump. Americans are going, black stump? We know what it means, (laughs) it's way out in the outback. Oh that's Australian too isn't it, the outback, what's that? A biblical example is my little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins means I'll be more severe than my father in the context there. So sometimes idioms are used. Sometimes there's an anthropomorphism, big word, love it, anthropomorphism, where a non-human subject is given human characteristics. You see, this all this time with pet owners and their animals. Oh, the animal seems to have be a person, he's part of the family, <laughs> not really but you're projecting as a, an owner, you're projecting qualities onto the animal and that's an anthropomorphism. Take for example uh, folly in the book, book of Proverbs, folly is called a woman, well folly is just folly but you know it's putting human-like characteristics upon something And principle five, there's there's a principle of logic called the law of non-contradiction. And that says that you can't have a proposition and it's negation. They can't both be true at the same time. For example, Jemima is pregnant and Jemima is not pregnant. Cannot both be true, can they, at the same time? They can't be both true. So given that God tells the truth, then he can't contradict himself. Therefore, when you look at the Bible and you say, oh, that's contradictory, all that means really is you haven't fully understood yet because God can't contradict himself. Hebrews 6 verse 18, God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. See, it's impossible for God to lie. And then there's another aspect of this here, apparent contradictions, is paradoxes. You know what a paradox is? Something this two things seem to be different and yet they're supposed to be true at the same time. Take one from Luke nine twenty four. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. It's a paradox. In this case, it's solved by saying that the life which we've talked about in both propositions is not the same. So the first life that you'll lose is that life where you're in control and you're the boss and you won't yield it over to God. But if you lose that life and you give your life over to God, then in actual fact you'll keep it because you'll be having now eternal life. And so out of that we see the principle that Scripture validates Scripture. And real contradictions are not possible. And so when you're reading something you say, oh, and where else in the Bible does it teach this? If you've got something you go, oh, that's something new I haven't seen before. Let me just look up a commentary and check out what it says in other parts. Just make sure I'm on the right track here because uh, Scripture validates Scripture. couple of things to watch out couple, when you're reading one is volatile definitions in other words they're changeable definitions. Take this, this good looking fellow here uh, who says hey well hey can mean anything it can mean yes hey it can mean maybe Hey, it could mean hey it could mean nay next week. The bottom line is you have to understand me to understand hey. So some things can be a bit different in different places. Take, for example, the concept of Abraham's seed. Abraham's seed, or his descendants. Well, there are four different meanings for that at different parts of Scripture. One is, his seed is the Jews. That's his literal, physical descendants of Abraham. But then again, in Romans 4:11, it's believing Gentiles are called his seed. And then in Romans 11, 2 to 5, it's believing Jews are his seed. And then sometimes his seed is just Jesus Christ himself. He is the seed that bruised the heel of the woman. And you've got to just sometimes you have to watch some things a bit variable. You've got to say, am I bringing the right interpretation into this scripture? Another warning is that sometimes the modern word that we understand is not the same thing that they understood in those days. Take for example if I say oh Phil's going to be the ambassador for us which he actually was a little while ago, he went was an ambassador on our behalf at, a bap- at the baptism that Jim did down in Perth and that's a position of rank and uh, an ambassador might have an embassy to work in or a fancy car and things but in Paul's day An ambassador was actually someone, oh, who will we send? We send someone who's expendable because the warring guys besieging the city will send in this ambassador to go and tell him what his terms are and chances are that he might not like what the ambassador says and the ambassador might not come back out. It's all right. So sometimes the meaning for us is different from what it was then. And this is, the next warning is Correlation, co-relation, doesn't necessarily mean causation. Because this is related to that, doesn't mean that this caused that. Because this is very easy. You can find something that agrees with your thinking in just about any book at all. But if you don't ask what the original author had in mind, then it's so easy to put your meaning onto what you see written there. It's very easy to map your ideas onto a biblical account and to see what you want to see. Ask any guy who has to go to the fridge and find the milk. He doesn't see it in there because he doesn't know it's there. He comes with, "I didn't see any milk in there last time. I didn't put the milk in. How would I know there's milk in there?" You yeah. know. It's profound, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> If the idea you're thinking about actually do is an inve- inevitable consequence of that text well then that's correct but not if there's just some links between your idea and the passage because if it's are some links you go well maybe I'll just check it out a bit more So this has all been to ask when you read the Bible what did it mean there so then you get that part right, you can say well then what does it mean for us today and just uh, flash you again that complete table of, of what a law looks like. Too much to read in one go, you've got the just ask what the principles are, ask what did it mean, remember the context, think is it a particular type of genre? Do I need to take this literally or just literarily? And remember, oh, this seems to contradict something I read somewhere else. Maybe I'll check that out first so I can understand because there are no real contradictions in the Bible. So friends, let's wrap it up. God should be obeyed and trusted, we know that. His word, rightly interpreted, gives us all the whos. it gives us all the what's, it gives us the when's, the why's, the where's of how to obey and how to trust gives it all that we need and the principles we've considered this morning are tools to rightly interpret the scripture so we can learn and apply what we learn to our lives and become more mature in our faith and we want to remove the focus from our biases and place them on God's word because that holy word has power in our lives. Sometimes there's diligence, sometimes there's our hard work and we always say try and read it every day. Get it into your lifestyle because it's going to give you truth to, that, that you need and it's going to give you the power to, do, to uh, do what's right in your life. And yet at the end of the day it's less about being a puzzle to solve and it's more about being a person to know, an author to know. It's more about growing in love for God and growing in love for one another than just growing in knowledge and being real clever. So let's finish with a wonderful closing prayer from Ephesians. Paul says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better and, of course, know his word. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Let us pray. We come as human beings who find it so easy to see what we want to see in the Word. And so help us to be disciplined about seeing what you said through the author to that situation and understand it so we can be as accurate as possible and then know how to interpret it. We rely upon you for that, Lord and we commit our reading of your word into your care. Pray that you guide us and lead us and enlighten the eyes of our heart. All praise be to God. Amen.